Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. And now to our special feature, Processor Technology and the Sol 20 Computer, 30 years ago. This was a special panel held on November 5th, 2006 as a part of the Vintage Computer Festival at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. The panel was hosted by Lee Felsenstein, the designer of the SOL, and featured former processor technology employees Brett Bullington, Drew Rogie, Aram Atarian II, Diane Asher, and Gordon French calling in from Oregon. Let's listen. SOL 2035th anniversary uh, commemoration, uh, wake, and whatever. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Diane Asher, one of our less decorous people, um, and we will be uh, here to discuss and enlighten the whole issue of what the heck was the saw and why did it matter. We have on the phone from uh, the sunny state of Oregon, uh, Gordon French. Gordon, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And we can hear you. This is working out. Um, unlike most of what I do. Um, I am Lee Felsenstein. I was the, uh, quote, the, I guess the electronic designer of the saw. Uh, Gordon was the project uh, engineer and certainly the mechanical designer of the saw. We will talk a little bit about that. Um, we have Brett Bullington who did things around the office. What was your title? I don't have no clue. Uh, a long time ago. And <laughs> Drew Rogie. Uh, who uh, got snared in, uh, he'll talk about how that happened. Uh, Aramitarian II, who was predated the Saal at Processor Tech and uh, therefore saw the whole sordid deal go down. Uh, and Diane Asher, who uh, answered the phone and told people that their shipment would be in two weeks. Um, so the uh, let us begin by setting the stage. Uh, 1975, this was. Um, of course, we anybody who's paid any attention to computer history knows that the Altair computer was announced in the cover of Popular Electronics magazine, January 75. Uh, I had a few months before that run into Bob Marsh. By the way, Bob cannot be here. He's he's in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, it's hard light. There's, there's more to that. He's been just been in Africa putting up wireless systems. Um, so Bob Marsh and I had uh, gone in on shared a garage for $175 a month in Berkeley, 2465 4th Street. Uh, and but he didn't know what he was going to do. And I was trying to make scratch out a living as a uh, as a uh, contract uh, electronic designer. So I set up my workbench in there, and, and he went about doing whatever he wanted. He did have a friend who had gone to Wisconsin, was it, and had gotten into the uh, wood industry, and had he knew where there was a source of eight-inch high, center-cut, beautifully grained walnut pieces. So he knew he wanted to build something with the walnut wood on it. <laughs> and he talked about doing a digital clock at one point. And then, of course, uh, the Pop Electronics article arrived 
and you know the heavens rent asunder in effect, and all was revealed. Uh, he looked at that and he said, "This thing, the picture on this thing is obviously a fake. Look, it's lumpy, and look at the diagrams. There's nothing inside." And so he set up a little company to make the things that would plug into the Altair. Uh, now, thus, Processor Technology Corporation was created. Uh, sort of a P, sagging P logo. We called it the pregnant P. Um, and they began to fill up the garage with activity, uh, shipping kits of parts and so forth. Uh, I was uh, involved in, uh, dragged into uh, documenting uh, designs they had done, uh, the 2KRO, 2, 2KRO, the 2K ROM. No, no, ROM board. It's a, I made a ROM board with 256 uh, byte ROMs, I think. And then they made a 4KRA RAM board, static memory, one mic, well, 800 nanoseconds cycle time, not much. Um, and 3P plus S, parallel plus serial, and whatever you need for I.O. Because, of course, the Altairs had zero I.O., only the switches on the front panel. So... Um, there was a lot of activity, a lot of improvisation, and uh, this little garage of 1,200 square feet uh, filled up with 12 people, uh, approximately. It was hard to uh, count. Oh, here's Salam. Please come up and bring the the uh, unit of honor. <laughs> be careful up here. Gordon is on the phone, and it'll be a crash, terrible crash. Don't be set up to heaven. I guess he got here. Let's let's save Gordon from. Acoustical <laughs> mayhem. We'll put Gordon on top of it. We'll put Gordon on top, yeah. <laughs> satellite mic. Um, so Asal has just been presented before us. Then uh, Bob had told me that they would uh, pay me to design the, the Tom Swift terminal that I had written a spec about, which was a, really its own computer to build its way up from a... From a uh, a memory board and a, a video display and keyboard input, all on the grounds that it might still be too expensive to use microprocessors. That was 1974, I did that. But he wanted to stun his own way. And so the VDM1 was the result. And uh, that, you know, the board was plugged into the S100 bus and it had a RG59U 75 ohm video cable coming out. And that to me is still you know, a high-class deal. Plug it into a monitor, presto, you got 64 by 16, you know, 16 lines of 64 characters, nice and stable on the screen. And then he said, the, the, the okay, this is my, my version of the history of the Sol. First of all, we were dealing with Les Solomon, uh, technical editor of Popular Electronics magazine. Very amazing character. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. Uh, but he had the world's uh, greatest deadpan expression uh, and used it to great effect. So he was really the czar of the personal computer industry at its, in its early months. He decided to put the Altair on the cover, and he risked his own career probably by doing it. And uh, if you wanted to get something into the, the publication, Popular Electronics, you had to go to him. Well... I'm not sure how many hustlers and fools were after him, uh, but at one point, apparently, and somebody can correct me if they know more than I do, uh, a, well, I think 
there was some kind of relationship developing between um, Popular Electronics and some company that made an intelligent terminal. And I think there was a place in Georgia or something. I'm not yeah. sure what it was. ISC or something? I, I, I'm, no, Aaron? No, you, you got it. I, okay. ISC. ISC. It is color intelligent terminal for whatever good it was. And apparently we got the word that the deal had fallen through with Popular Electronics to put that on the cover and Les needed a replacement. So he said he would put this on the cover if we would create an intelligent terminal. Now what the heck's an intelligent terminal? Everybody knows it really is a computer. Um, and Bob immediately seized on that and realized this could be, well, he, he sort of pulled me up into his little loft office in the back of the garage and he said, now here's the plan. We don't tell him it's a computer. But we take the VDM-1 and we put the rest of the computer out. Heck, we're already building most of it, or at least shipping kits for it. So just mush that stuff together and put an S100 bus on it. And we don't tell Popular Electronics it's not an intelligent terminal. It's a computer all on its own right. Uh, well, okay. And so it was around it was about October of 1975, if I recall correctly. Uh, that I started working on that. And I'm, I'm going to start muffing the dates here because I realized that I don't know if I'm off by a year or not. Somebody else will be able to help me on this one. Probably Gordon. Yes. Uh, I started there on, on December 17th, 1975, and there was a, a diagram on the wall, a cir circuit diagram, and it had the cryptic uh, letters S-O-L on it, and no one seemed to know what it was. Okay. So it was October 75. I was just getting the, uh, the EDM-1 put to bed, and uh, I was told, you know, we got to do this right away. Um, in fact, it was for, I don't, okay, it was for the, I don't know if we knew at the time, but it was for the July edition of, uh, July 76 edition of Harvard Electronics. And magazines like that typically have made for about a three-month lead time. Um, anyway, um, I started putting together this, the design, uh, something I, a bigger project than I'd ever done before. Um, and the, the, the prototype was to be a PC, in other words, printed circuit. That's what that stands for, not IBM PC. Um, and so my memory of those of that time is foreshortened, compressed, and very confused. I can't really name dates. Uh, I know that a lot of effort went into it. Uh, I think oh, we worked over the Christmas uh, uh, vacation, who had vacations then. Um, and I recall that Bob Roeder was brought in as a superb printed circuit layout person who had worked for uh, Livermore Labs, and it turns out he was really superb at getting tape to be parallel. He'd rip it up and try it again, rip it up and try it again. So um, we had some offices, and we had a loft area above that, and that's where we set up the, uh, the big light box that could have been Bob's carpenter friend made. Some somebody made a gigantic light box, and you sat down. You had in, in those days, some of you may not know this, but most of you probably do. Um, printed circuits were not laid out on computers. 
they were laid out with tape on uh, clear plastic film, mylar film. And uh, it's a good idea when you do that to draw out what you're going to do beforehand on paper. And sometimes use red and blue pencil for top and bottom layer and all this stuff. Uh -uh. Well, that wasn't how Bob was doing. I did my own side of the board. We have what is probably the only one. There were only three of these boards were ever built. This is the prototype board, uh, the original proto board. Uh, they were uh, turned out by somebody who worked in a garage, Moonlighter basically, that uh, <coughs> uh, turned out three of them. Hand drilled them, so some of the drilling holes are a little bit off. Uh, and the layout is incomplete. Uh, we have kind of a diagonal separation here. You'll see two very greatly different styles of layout. One has all kinds of wavy lines. The others are all nice little right angle. Guess who's in mine? This is a wavy, so that's me. Bob <laughs> wrote, uh, see these nice parallel traces here for power distribution? Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely meaningless. But <laughs> because of the way they're set up on opposite sides of the chips in question, the parallelism is with the wrong thing. Uh, so this got laid. I, I got most of what I had to do done, and that includes um, does not include the processor. That was that was Bob's, and some timing circuitry here, and much other things. I'm trying to make. I see. Uh, yes, the RAM is here because I can see the parallel connections of the array. There's this array up here is ROM, 24-pin uh, socket. So then we have the VDM portion over here, and we have a, a UART this big 40-pin device, and they have the, uh, the uh, DV25s. Uh, there was no cassette circuitry on this, and the, uh, but there was a cassette put in the box just to indicate, you know, for the magazine article, there's going to be a cassette. Um, so the, then we, we, we did this layout over the space of maybe two weeks, and uh, Bob kept drinking Coke, and I kept drinking orange juice to stay alive. And he he, he succumbed first, as I put it. You know, mm -hmm. illness got to him. And uh, so we did what we could. And then so there was the board, and there was a schematic. And what was on the board was on the schematic, but not the vice versa. So we had to add wires, well over 100 wires, building it up. Uh, that's Only one was built. And as I say, three boards were made. So I don't know where the other board is. I'll bet Steve Dompier has it. I'm not sure. Um, so we went out with this. And uh, I remember a trip to uh, New York with the saw in hand. Now, Gordon, by that time, you were involved. Yes. Tell us something about it. Well, <clears throat> I had started uh, simply, I guess, as kind of a techno salesman and it uh, came about that nobody on the staff knew anything about mechanical anything and what Bob had wanted for the front cover was a essentially a wing shaped saw that uh, was a piece of uh, plexiglass hot bent and he had tried hot bending it at home and had brought uh, a big blanket and a heater and some other stuff down to 
um, 4th Street, and we had tried to, to make a bend, and it became bloody obvious that we weren't going to make it that way. And so I had suggested that perhaps what we needed was an industrial designer. And that's kind of how I got involved in the saw, uh, through the back door of not being able to bend the plexiglass. Hmm. All right. That, that'll be a, let that be a lesson. Uh, yeah, so, it, you know, it, Gordon had some knowledge of a number of things. Programming, he's a, a contract programmer, right? Yes, I've been a programmer for something like 15 years prior to that. And also he had built the Chicken Hawk, which is an 8008-based shift register memory thing that worked in his home. He had a home yes. computer. Yeah. Built. So he's ahead of us in a lot of stuff. Plus he knew things about mechanical design. That we yeah, I, I built a ride-behind locomotive uh, that burned coal and generated steam. And, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that kind of made me a me mechanical whiz right. uh, at processor technology anyway. Yeah, certainly by comparison. Yeah. Uh, okay, and so this effort went underway to put this thing together and get it uh, out to uh, Les Solomon for his blessing in time. Yeah, I have to point out that at that point, the problems were myriad. We had no keyboard uh, and, and no design for one, uh, no clue as to how a keyboard was really going to interface and, and be settled on this thing. You know, what's going to support it? Are we going to put a bracket up, up there over the top of the circuit board? Uh, there, there were just a myriad of problems, uh, and <laughs> this this kept us on 12-hour days for quite a long time, trying to figure out, you know, well, well, how this thing was going to interface to an S100 bus was another problem. Yeah, there was uh, on the board there was one, well, one S100 connector. Oh, wrong board. I guess th I have another uh, the prototype of the Rev C board here. And they both had one connector on them in the middle, this for the Protoss Rev-C. That's the S100 connector, and on the Sol Proto, it's on the back. And that's one of those cases of push your problems off to one side and, and then solve them later. <laughs> where are you going to, you know, mechanically, where are you going to do it? Um, the Proto, the, the, the first Proto, therefore, um, you know, would run the code that we developed for ALS-8, you know, the... Uh, uh, I think Drew is going to have to give an explanation of that. Um, and you know, I, I, I delivered it to, um, I don't remember who I delivered it to. I remember going out to Livermore to Gary Ingram's place. He was one of the, the Gary and Bob and Steve Dompier had founded Processor Tech, and I think there was one other. Gary Holmes. He didn't found it. He came in later. Maybe he, maybe he bought in. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, Gary was a software uh, guy, and so that's where the software was being developed. And I remember coming out there to help solve a problem as to why the software wasn't working. I have to tell you a kind of a funny relative to the software. Um, I had an official title that was conferred on me by Gary Ingram, and that, that was also project engineer for the ALS-8 system. Now, I have to tell you that I did nothing on the ALS-8 except complain as to when it was going to be delivered. I wanted to play with it. Two weeks. 
and uh, I, I never got a copy of it, and I kept saying, when are you guys going to have this thing? And they kept saying, next week, next week. Well, mine, when I fin it finally was delivered, when it came up, instead of saying, ready carrot, it said, next week carrot. <laughs> That kind of stuff happened. So, uh, in that garage, uh, teaming with people, they decided they would call themselves Prop Tech. And I said, nah, Proctology. <laughs> and there were times when I answered the phone that way. But you can't do that these days anymore. Uh, the doctors would sue. The doctors would sue, yes. Okay, so we got uh, Bob, Marsh, and I took the prototype to New York and to see Byte magazine in New Hampshire. Um, and I, I had to, I was working all night before that. I, Gordon, you may well have been working all night too, that, uh, that fateful night of, I'm not sure what, which month it was. Um, in all probability, yes. Yeah, I'm sure of that. So we, we got, we, actually we, we all right, I'm not sure about that. I do know that it was that Bob took a red-eye flight because it was cheaper. And that meant that I didn't get any sleep. Uh, we probably had been gotten sleep in, within the previous 24 hours. Uh, so it's all a kind of an, a, a, a phantasmagoric spectacle to me when I remember it. Well, uh, yes, there was a great deal of confusion going on for example, ALS-8 was not deliverable, and it did not arrive until long after the Saul had, uh, Les Solomon had messed with the Saul. As a matter of fact, I guided him through the first loading of the program, and as you recall, it was quite a long uh, load to get it in, and finally, as uh, he uh, read the last frame of the code into the machine, he says, oh, God, he says, it didn't work, it didn't work. I said, wait a minute, Les. You know, he said, didn't work, didn't work. It's not coming up. I said, wait, Les. And then finally it came up and said, ready. And he says, there it is, there it is. <laughs> Remember, his job might have been on the line. Uh, so, the, like I said, the poker face. Uh, that the, the first trip through, we, the, uh, the thing didn't work. You could see it sort of trying to boot up, but... Uh, it had a lot of snow on the screen and uh, so forth. So we had this dysfunctional computer to show, and we had to show it around. And I remember going through Boston, whether there was anybody in Boston we actually saw, I can't remember. Uh, and we went up to New Hampshire, um, and I, I got some sleep then, because it was you know, the end of the day of the second day. And, uh, we saw the folks at Byte magazine, uh, Carl Helmers and uh, uh, Virginia, well, formerly Virginia, uh, who's the Killaboard guy? Green. Oh, it was Virginia Green. Green. Virginia Green. Green. She was still Virginia Green at that point, whatever. Um, the, the, there's many stories that go with that. We're not going to tell them here. I'm not sure if this will jog you, but you probably ran into John Dilks up there, didn't you? I don't recall. Oh. Um, it, it, I could have. Dilks was involved in the PC-76 Atlantic City computer show. Right. That's, I have his card from that. Uh, and I, I can't resist it. You know, it it's, it's, he didn't choose his name. And I would think that if he were 
uh, a great figure. There would be, a, as a figure of speech would arise, I've been dilt. <laughs> but we don't know. Maybe he's a great guy. Um, so anyway, we, we, and we went to New York City and made our excuses at the offices of Popular Electronics and stumbled back to Berkeley, whereupon I was told, get this thing working. And I, I found that a crumb of wire or this real fine wire that comes as the shield of the, of the braid of the uh, video cable. You know, somebody had not been, somebody, maybe me, had not been good enough about making sure a little piece of it didn't fall on the board and underneath the sockets. Yes, it was shorting out some address line. And of course, on this board, you see that muddy uh, quality to it meant it was not given the full professional's treatment. It didn't have what's called a solder mask a layer that, that covers everything that isn't supposed to be exposed. So everything was up for short circuits. Um, and something did, and I got it fixed, and then Bob said, you, get on a plane, take it back to New York, and don't tell them it's a computer. Um, so I showed up there, I showed it off, and Les Solomon, you know, again, full po poker playing mode, uh, starts figuring it out. He said, well, that's an S-100 car, that's a bus slot. Said, what would prevent you, he said, from putting a, a ROM board on this thing and running a basic? There I was nailed. I mean, I just said, beats me. <laughs> <laughs> and he got the point. And he also tried to press me for, okay, what are you going to do? You know, what's your ad buy strategy going to be? Are we going to get the business? That wasn't what I was sent to play. I, I tried to hold him off, and he shouted at me eventually. And he, I said, look, I don't know. You'll have to talk to them. Uh, so it was, it was in. The fix was in then. Uh, the idea, though, was, of course, Processor Tech was very scared that the reason why they didn't want to tell them was a computer, and I guess I didn't tell you this, is they felt that NITS, the Altair company, in effect owned Processor, uh, owned, uh, not Processor Tech, they owned Popular Electronics, which is not true. I mean, it was Ziff Davis, a big publishing company. But the point of it was they felt that if they crossed NITS in any way, NITS would threaten to pull their ads from Popular Electronics and, and we'd be out. And of course, that's not the way the whole thing runs. And, uh, you know, the magazine wants to be a power to itself, and it could be, since it had, especially if it had a competitor to its biggest customer. So they had it completely wrong in terms of strategy. Uh, okay, so we came back, and much work ensued. At this point, I have to sort of pass it over to others who became involved at that point. But before I do that, Aram, <coughs> Aram was there in the VDM days, right, before the SOC. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, do you, what do you think this audience ought to know that you've experienced in those days? Uh, yeah, it wasn't VDM. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting because uh, I, like a lot of the folks here, sort of ended up at this company out of some sort of serendipity. And the one, the one thing that really impressed me is I got interviewed by Bob Marsh, who spent two-thirds of the interview explaining the metaphor of a movie called the Saragossa Manuscript and how it related to programming. And I was so I never read the movie because it's a three-and-a-half-hour movie about Bob's metaphor was uh, subroutines. subroutines. So I had a headache, and I took the job. <laughs> and I actually found my original business card. My title was Applications Engineer. I was not an engineer, but 
I was the guy who picked up the phone and, and you know, solved customers' problems, theoretically. Yeah. And we had no idea what we were into. Brett, myself, Diane, Drew, we all sort of showed up from various uh, parts of the world and different kinds of jobs and backgrounds. And nobody had that historical sense of, oh boy, we're in the computer revolution. We were basically living in Berkeley, you know, which was a very exciting place at the time. I got done with the revolution, decided to go to the next one, uh, as we well know. Um, there was this place called Silicon Valley, which was way, way, way down somewhere. Populated by insane people who throw money around. Yeah. And the closest we ever got to that was going to the Homebrew Computer Club meetings, which was pretty interesting, a long drive. Menlo Park. Yeah. And we were doing this kind of cool thing, where, and my friends would say, you're doing what? A computer? What is that? You know, 1976, nobody really thought about personal computers as a tool that the average person would use. And, except Lee, of course, who had the uh, original idea for what was called the virtual terminal? That's the, the Tom Swift terminal. Yeah, you and, uh, what's his name? Nelson. Well, they got community memory. Yeah. No, that's different. It, it, Put that, in the kiosks and modes. Public and access uh, information exchange places, and that was, we experimented with that and found that there was a tremendously positive response to it. And it's called an open door on the commons of information, or cyberspace, you might say. Yeah. So <coughs> there was some vision in the company. Bob, Bob's vision of uh, doing something other than staying in school, and Lee's vision of actually probably was the vision that people like Steve Jobs had that Lee articulated a little bit differently because Lee's not exactly a marketing person. And Brent, who had come out of college and as a machinist, decided he was going to work in shipping or something. And none of us really came there with this idea that we were going to change the world. We were just going to make some money, have fun, stay stoned, and work. <laughs> Those are the priorities. And our, <laughs> our customers were not exactly people that we could, uh, that we would normally talk to. You know, pick up the phone, some guy called from New York screaming that his, uh, that his uh, 3P plus S didn't work, so he'd spend the next four hours explaining all the little jumper wires and where they go. But it worked. You know, the great thing was I, I spent 25 years in the computer industry, finally bailed out, went to work uh, in the nonprofit world, which doesn't pay quite as well. And thing worked. It act, the salt actually worked. They shipped it after two weeks. <laughs> and that was like a, a sort of the insider joke at the company. So how are you doing today? Two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, our customers actually took us seriously and believed us. And it was easy to support. It, it didn't break. They didn't, they didn't get, have any recalls. The size didn't fall off too often. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yes. They, Back to the uh, the design and its introduction. Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole mess of stuff that goes right in that slot. Uh, I was still struggling to get uh, Gary Ingram and Bob Marsh to uh, agree to involve an industrial designer in the looks of the thing, and there were several big problems. One, not the least of which, is how are you going to hang a an S100 bus and a and a, a a board, you know, a, a essentially a motherboard, uh, in in this thing vertically. And Bob Marsh and I had struggled and struggled and struggled with it, and there just didn't seem to be a way. So finally, uh, I contacted a friend, and he said, "Well, the guy you need is Gene Tepper because he's just back in town." Well, Tepper was a world-class in, uh, industrial engineer. 
and um, designer. And we were lucky enough to call him, and he had nothing on his plate. And so he decided to take the saw, and he did the, the looks of it. He did the first sketch, and he made the first cardboard model of the thing. And it indeed was designed around the, the wooden banister, as I called it, <laughs> uh, the two wooden uh, sides that were made of walnut. Still, there was a whole mess of things, and uh, Tepper said, well, just, you know, build it this way, and I looked at Bob, and Bob looked at me, and we both did a Frenchman shrug, and uh, he said, well, if you guys have nobody to design this, there's a fellow out in the valley, um, lives uh, up there near you guys at Walnut Creek by the name of Dick Gray, and Dick Gray does sheet metal design, and so we didn't know whether we now could spend even more money by involving a sheet metal designer, but we decided to call Dick in, and Dick took a look at it, and he says, yeah, you need this, you need that, and the other thing, and we said, well, how can you build this thing so that there's a motherboard right slap in the middle of it, and Dick said, no problem, and so uh, after half a dozen trips down to Southern California to a short metal, short run sheet metal outfit, uh, we managed to have the sheet metal to make the saw. And that that little paragraph of information right there covers a multitude of sins and errors over about a four-month period. And it, we sh I want to point out that this is probably the most highly engineered uh, personal computer design of the first five years. Uh, it's not injection-molded plastic, we admit, but on the other hand, uh, this thing can support hundreds of pounds, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure how much impact it can take. Uh, and uh, it is, it's a really solid mechanical design. Uh, it had a lot of parts. Uh, putting it together wasn't terribly easy, as I recall. No. And it but but there, there's one guy that's remaining quiet when he should be standing up and talking, and that's Aramitarian, who did the... Uh, layout of getting all the parts for the power supply in that little bitty area. Right. I have to explain. When Bob Marsh, you know, we went over who was going to do what, he said, I want this uh, cassette design. And I figured out how to do it. And I looked at what he had figured out, and I said, this is too dangerous. Uh, I mean, I had dealt with uh, tape when I worked for Ampex and uh, Special Products Division and interfacing a, uh, a computer interface to it and pulling 55 hertz codes off of the tape. And oh my God, that was a mess. And here we wanted to use just any cassette player, not provided by us. And uh, I said, y y what you're doing is going to be a mess. I'm, I, I don't want to do it. And, and he said, well, I'll do it. And same for the power supply. Bob designed the power supply, the circuit of it. You know, Aaron, to Aaron belongs the credit of how, how you fit all that stuff in there, which it is pretty dense. I'll maintain that I was right on the cassette interface because, as we found out only, I don't know, five, ten years ago. Now, Son, if you're here... Uh, the name of the fellow who did the put the software, the, the cassettes, he uh, recorded them onto a CD. And that thing works like a champ. 
I mean, all the mess is in the cassette player itself. That's why the CD player just, you know, works fine with this, uh, what's called the CUTS computer user tape system uh, interface. However, that should have been done a little differently. Uh, and I will hold offline conversations with anybody who's interested in that kind of thing. Um, I just want to add one thing to that. The, the difference between this and what everybody else had used before this was, if you remember the M-size and the, what's the other one? Out there all had these uh, panels with all these switches. So to load software, you would spend three or four hours setting all these switches, find out it was wrong, have to start over again, wipe off the blister and get started. With this, it actually worked out of the box with uh, some kind of interface, and it had some ROM in it. And, you know, kind of like how uh, IBM gets the credit for starting the, the PC revolution instead of Apple. Well, Apple got the, revo uh, the credit, and I love Apple because I worked there for many years. They got the credit for the first integrated computer. I think this was the first oh. fully integrated, except for a monitor computer, out on the market. Well, but look, Apple didn't have a monitor either. No. So this was the first... We call it the complete PC. Now, uh, wait a minute, guys. Let's hear Gordon. The sphere happened to have us both in spades. The sphere came out about three months before we got out, and then we were second, and then Apple pulled up a third. And I and several of the Apple found two of the Apple founders had gone around and around about that. But the sphere actually beat okay. us by a couple of weeks. I will, I will admit the sphere existed then. The sphere <laughs> had its own monitor, right? Yes. Okay, so it's a built-in monitor. And I would love to learn more about the sphere, but so few ever existed. I mean, now you get into, okay, the Silicon Valley aspect of, yeah, but they weren't uh, commercially successful. So first manufacturable. They were manufacturers. Spheres were manufactured, they, they, but not about for long. 1300. How much? 1300. About 1300 spheres were, were manufactured. What company made it? Sphere. Sphere of Utah. Oh. 6800. No. No. Uh, so the question is, how many people in this room have a saw? How many have a sphere? There's one up on the So the answer was about eight or nine, ten people have, have solved. And for whatever it's worth, I'm not an archivist or a historian or a marketer for that matter. It, it actually survived in some volume and stuck in people's houses, no matter what it's doing, collecting dust or otherwise. Do they so, work? Do the people have solved so they work? So we'll take credit for it. Right, Lane? Oh, absolutely. The, 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 like, the Sphere was first, but they never delivered a working computer in their entire history. Though. Really? Ah, okay. <laughs> Who can still play Target? Well, wait a minute, guys. That's not fair. Everything was available as a kit. Even the saw was a kit. Was the Sphere a kit? Yes, yeah. it was. Oh, yeah. Half kit, half assembled. Half and half. I guess the monitor had to be pre-assembled. Well... But then we won't talk about we'll have the, you know, the academic <laughs> argument is won by the sphere. The industrial argument is won by the saw. How about that? Uh, and I know because I got $12 for each one of these. <laughs> and I didn't have to give it back. Uh, now, one thing that's very important, this, is, this was originally a solution just to a parts availability problem, but it really was a very important thing. The... And here I'm trying to get this out. The personality module. It's the ROM. It's the boot ROM. And it's on a little card. And you could have another one. 
Uh, in fact, there were three. There was the uh, original, the Consul, I think it was called. Personality Market. Yeah. Personality Market. Yeah, the, the software, the three forms of software. Uh, the the regular Consul, there was something that was done as a degenerate form for the intelligent terminal version Terminus. of this, which never went anywhere. Terminus? Termos. Termos. Okay. And there was the Helios. Uh, so maybe uh, Drew can talk a little bit about some of the software development that we had to uh, work on after the geniuses got done. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's mere software. I'll just, I'll just get to the point of the Atlantic City Convention, Atlantic City PC-76. The first computer fair was where? San Francisco? No. Atlantic City, in the, the waning days of the grand old hotels there, where they all completely decayed and were going to be torn down and replaced with casinos. Um, so it was, space was cheap. So John Dilks put that show together, and we headed out there. I, mean, I, I completely have no recollection of how I got, because I found my address or date book from that time, and where I thought I was on a plane going to Atlantic City, it turns out I had traveled by train to the East Coast and then visited my father and I had gone down to Atlantic City. So what the hell? Um, and no drugs. We, what's that? No drugs. No drugs. No, this is, this is a, you know. This is the drug. <laughs> There's a satirical song about the Pope dating from the 60s and the line is, he don't even have to take dope. With this, you don't even have to take dope if you're doing this stuff. Uh, everything is surreal. Uh, so we had Sal's, as you pretty much see him here. We had, now Gordon has in fact in his possession, um, some sand-colored sheet metal, which is their alternative. Can I uh, tell my story there? Go for it. Okay. Uh, what had happened is we had still discussions as to what color the thing should be. Uh, that is the main color of the the sheet metal, and it seemed obvious since Big Blue was being called Big Blue that we ought to have a blue computer. And so we we had some sheet metal uh, painted blue. We were using an automobile body shop, but Bob, um, who was quite the hippie at that time, and there was a universal church going in Berkeley uh, that you could be ordained to for a mere $12. And Bob had gotten his ordination, so I began to call him about that period, uh, Your Grace, and I asked him if I could kiss his ring. And we had a lot of fun with his $12 ordination. But he also wanted to have what he termed uh, earth tones solve. So we determined that a light sand would be earth tones and maybe a brown to go with the brown sides would be appropriate. So we had one set of sheet metal made up in earth tones. And the only problem was that the night before the flight, where we were going to get on the plane with the only working saw in the world, uh, we didn't have enough guts to make two. So we did have some newspaper. So we took and put the sheet metal together with the sand-colored uh, panels on it, and we stuffed it full of newspaper. And so now we had two uh, two saws that looked like they might work, but one only one had electronics and could work, and the other one had newspaper and couldn't. 
Guts, in this case, refers to the actual electronics, not fortitude. Yeah. So when we got to Atlantic City and we were setting up the uh, display for these two saws, the working saw was put on a pedestal out among the people, and the non-working sand-colored saw was put way in the back, uh, up about 10 feet off the ground so that nobody could press on it and hear the newspaper crinkle. <laughs> right. So we, were, we had taken some of the saw boards and mounted them, as I recall, on little pieces of plywood, maybe with a little trim around it, so they were good presentation grade. I seem to recall we had two of those, and I worked out, and I remember explaining to Gordon how you would, should walk around the board and explain all the various things that were there. And uh, I mean, you wave these boards in front of people, and it's kind of like the object, object of veneration, bow down before it. Um, but actually, uh, it was quite ahead of the show. And because nobody had, nobody could make that claim, and nobody could hold it up on a piece of, on a plywood, the spear wasn't there, uh, <laughs> and say, and you get this, and you get that, and you get this, and you get that, and you get this too, and pure, parallel, and serial, and something. It was really great. Uh, I, I remember pitching all day, and was finally dragged away. I think my father was down from New York, and he's a, he, he had been a sales promotion manager, and he knew, well, he thought he knew about trade shows. And then he saw this thing where people paid $5 to get in. And, and the trade shows from his, industrial trade shows, by, from his experience, you had to drag the people in. And there, the, the enthusiasm was palpable, immense. Uh, they even had this little booth up there with, with Steve Jobs and Dan Cockney showing off the Apple One. Um, but they were said to be working on something. Um, so I had to be dragged away to finally be taken to lunch. Uh, and it was, that was one of those cases that it, it didn't seem as if any time had passed. Um, so there we were, and the order book was open. So as of, as of I believe it was August 30th, just before you know, Labor Day, uh, orders were being taken for sauce. Now that didn't mean they were being shipped the next day, Oh, no. But, in fact, it made it into 1976, and when the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History was setting up an IBM-sponsored exhibit, the Information Age, um, which is still there, in part, they said, we want to show what, a what would be shown at a, at a computer club meeting in 1976, which excluded the Apple II. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't really believe that we had anything in 1975 that that would have uh, worked as a computer. So no. that the no. 1976 would have been the year. Yeah. I mean, and for official ex establishment types like the Smithsonian, things count as to when you first took orders. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we took orders. Sure. Hey, what happened to the orders? Let's go find out. Two weeks. You know, I, I, have, I have to say, on behalf of the American public, that laugh came from a lot of people who have been in the electronics business and know full well that taking orders and delivering product are two very different things. 
Okay, but you got a paper trail of taking the orders. <laughs> now, let's... Not one of the people in the company ever went to jail. Good heavens. Good heavens. Stock auctions that have been... So let's let's find out more. Okay, who who turned up next? Was it Brett? Were you? No. I am. Oh, Brett, Brett was there when I got there, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, you interviewed him. Brett was so modest. Can I hire him? Who's your role in all this? I ended up, uh, so I, uh, at Red Room College, I was a machinist. I made noise at the machinist's school. And I was uh, moved to Berkeley because my girlfriend at the time lived in Berkeley. And uh, there was a job posting on the UC Berkeley that they needed someone to help them fix the fact that the mechanical design of the chassis did not match the drilling holes in the wood. And as a result, they were going to ship these kits before Christmas. And in about November, uh, they realized that there was a, a change and they needed to either rejig the chassis or rejig the wood sides. All of them had been delivered to processor technology. So uh, they put a job posting up for someone who knew. I, since I was a machinist, I was a machinist that then uh, drill presses and all kinds of stuff during my four years of college. But uh, so I responded to it. Bob Marsh uh, had me come out and showed me what happened. And they had a little drill press out there. And so I fixed all of the wood sides by hand in the kits that were shipped between Christmas and New Year's of 1976. And that's when I joined. And then uh, until I got a job, Bob basically, job, Bob and would come out every day and hassle me about, you know, how are we doing, how are we doing, are we going to get these things done? And, uh, and then we were also kidding things. Like we were, in, when, when there were some problems with the, doing the wood sides, a whole bunch of us would create these kits with all the, all the parts in there from all the little socket holders and all that kind of not really a technical thing, but it was, it, we had to kit all the stuff up and put them in the kits and, and get them all assembled and ship them. So we got the wood sides done, we created some kits, we shipped. I have, how many units did we ship in 76? A thousand units between Christmas and New Year's? Something like that. It was a large number of units. Um, Brett, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we shipped all that Make stuff out. Reset, reset. Yeah. We shipped all that stuff out as kits, and that's when, uh, so that's when I joined, and I was just working temporarily. And then Bob asked me if I joined the sales group, and so I, I did. And that's how I fell into the computer business. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> <laughs> but I did that, and then so I, I worked in the in the sales group, and uh, uh, I was there all the way until the police came to the door in Pleasanton to give someone a uh, a warrant. But we weren't going to let him in because we didn't want to have the warrant served because the company was shutting down. So I was there during the whole cycle, from <coughs> shipping of the kits to. The police coming. And if they had drilled the holes correctly, you wouldn't have been there. And I wouldn't have been there if That's I wouldn't right. drill the holes. It was, it was actually kind of, it's, it was, like Aaron said, it was just sort of the serendipitous thing that occurred. And it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of characters uh, involved in the company, Lee being one of them, Gary Ingram being another huge character. But the um, late Gary Ingram, people ask, he died a few years ago. Yeah, so. And Diane was a character. Yeah. Yeah. Wait till she talks. Yeah. So that was my role. My role was just doing sort of salesy and fixing the wood sides of the kids. Staying out of the way, yeah. And for a small fee, I will tell you the real story of Brett Bullington. The, the, the funny thing though is that when we were there, Aaron was the expert ping pong player. He was really good. Uh -huh. But that was before Kippy Yap showed up. Yeah, that's yeah. 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 I mean, he Yap must have been on the Chinese national team. That guy was good. <laughs> he, was good. <laughs> he was real good. He beat him all. Uh, Drew. Diane's next. Uh -uh. 
that transferred to me later when I when I opened the community community center in in the town that I live in, where anybody could wander in off the streets and play with computers. And and I had a guy there who was 14 years old who who basically would take the donated computers and fix them up. And he's here somewhere. Micah, where are you? And and at 14, he's there playing with computers. And and you know, it's such a from from our day where where people came with kits and nobody under 30 would even think about it. These guys grew up thinking, oh, of course there'll be a computer for me. I, I found in recent years, when I address audiences more and more, I have to ask, to how many people is it, can, do you think, does it feel at all unusual about having a computer in the home? And, you know, the hands have dwindled over the years. Uh, so there's many things you have to explain, like, you know, sitting at a table of kids, and I tried to use the example of a, of a record player for the disc, and I realized none of them knew what a record player was. <laughs> <laughs> that was tough. Life gets tough. Drew, you haven't uh, told us how you happen to be involved in this. So Drew, give a little introduction. Yeah. Drew's, Drew was graphics guy. Gambier brought him in. Drew, uh, from from processor, he then became a graphics guru at Pixar, which you're still over And was at Pixar from when they were like a really small company. And if you watch any of the Pixar movies, you'll see the only guy up here who's playing a movie credit in there. So just give you an idea of what Drew's done from yeah. then he's to where made he some of them. <laughs> 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 well, that's because your, your movies are not going to be on TV. You were forced to do it, though. Okay, I started out at like the other end. I didn't start like with processor. I uh, I, I was a machinist, and uh, I found out that uh, we had some NC machines where I worked, and I wanted to learn to program for them and stuff like that because it seemed interesting. And uh, so I got took a couple of Fortran or a Fortran class at uh, Chabot over in Hayward, and. Uh, I got in, the, I talked my way into the first quarter and um, found out that it was under, then computers were under the math uh, department. And because I didn't have the math prerequisites, I couldn't get into the second quarter. And I had discovered that computers were a lot of fun. I mean, I was writing programs in Fortran and playing games and stuff like that. Well, it turns out a friend of mine at work actually had one of the original Altairs. And uh, he, had a, he had a BDM one, but input was a, teletypes and punch paper tapes to store things, stuff like that. But um, I started spending a lot of time over at his house playing with his computer. And uh, I uh, wrote a version of Life uh, in 8080 Assembler. I learned 8080 Assembler. And uh, thought, well, you know, maybe I could get something out of this. So uh, it, it, it used the VDM one directly. So I ended up sending this punch paper tape and a little listing of the program and stuff to processor technology. Uh, hoping that I would get some hardware or something. And, uh, oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I was spending a lot of time over his house, and it wasn't really good for the family situation. Uh, so I decided I should probably buy my own computer. And uh, uh, my friend and I, we spent a lot of time looking at computers. We went to, I think it was the bike shop over on El Camino in Palo Alto. This was like '75, probably. Um, looked at the Apple One. Uh, and ended up seeing the, the, the uh, article on the Sol in Popular Electronics. And uh, then I guess with Apple was 6502, something like that. And yeah. 
really wanted an 8080 and, and really kind of thought that that was the way to go. So I decided to send processor tech my check and, uh, and, and stick with the Intel chip. And I'd like to say now that I feel totally vindicated now that Apple has gone to the Intel Bordeaux. They finally seem to like <laughs> We're all happy. Uh, so anyway, um, I would call Diane and, and ask when the Sauls were going to ship and stuff. And I was hearing two weeks. But uh, because the program that I sent was written uh, using the ALS-8 uh, system, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but it was a, a big uh, ROM board. It had uh, the 8K of ROM on it or something. And yeah, it, I it had a, a, an early editor, uh, visual editor, which was really kind of neat because you just move the cursor around, type, and it would insert and stuff. Uh, an assembler, an ADA assembler, and a debugger. And uh, because of that, one night at work, I got a, a call from Gary Ingram, and uh, <coughs> he wanted to talk to me about running this thing called the uh, ALS-8 ALS Users Group. Uh, I think it was something that Gordon had been involved in for a while. It kind of got passed around to, to different people. It never actually went anywhere. But uh, yeah, started doing that, and finally, I got another. I started spending a lot of time over at Gary's. And uh, I think the original shipment of the salt wasn't complete. I'm not sure. Either that or I got mine early because I knew Gary. But I can remember it was, it was kind of like an attic. I would go over to Gary's garage and I would pick up this little plastic bag with the, the next uh, uh, group of parts that they had kitted up. And it was like, you know, oh, here's the cassette interface. You might go home and put the, try to put the cassette interface together. But I uh, ended up getting offered of a job at, at Processor Tech. And, tried to do one of those Joseph Campbell things of following your bliss and kind of made the sideways movement over into computers. And we warned you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the job was being the systems coordinator, whatever, whatever that meant. Um, I did things from uh, putting together uh, machines for the trade shows, taking uh, machines over to the trade shows, taking care of the machines that were used in-house by people, uh, stuff like that. But also I knew a bit about software. So... <laughs> Whenever Diane would get a, a, a question from the customer on the phone about, you know, hardware, Aram was the one that she always ran into. But uh, if the question started being about 5K basic or something like that, uh, Diane would end up coming talk to me. So I kind of ended up being the, the software guy on the phone. Uh, and, uh, I remember, uh, you know, the, the big questions at that point were, how do I do strings in 5K basic? Uh, questions about uh, PTDOS later on, and uh, there was this, uh, this, one, uh, this one question, I don't know if it was 8K basic or not, but uh, if you asked 8K basic to take the square root of 25, it would print out 4.999999 something or other, and uh, that was one question from a guy that I could just not pass off, but uh, anyway, uh, after... Uh, Processor tech went belly up. I, you know, became went from uh, claiming that I was a systems coordinator to actually becoming a, a computer programmer, and uh, kind of went on from there. Uh, one of the guys that uh, at Processor Tech who couldn't be here, Steve Dompier, one of the founders, uh, started up a company named Island Graphics, and uh, we went there and did graphics for a while, and it was fun. Steve's a real estate developer uh, in Montana. In Montana. Yeah. And he would have been here except his radiator and his RV 
and it would it would have been a very interesting one because they use a harmonic relationship between the data and the clock and they would effect they would extract the clock from the data off the tape and then then you could every UARC in the world had an input for that clock and nobody ever used it except feeding a constant clock would have been interesting I don't know there were probably some boards built with it but it never never caught on because it wasn't attached to a product yeah I have a question but my memory for whatever it's worth at my age I thought that we introduced the sol at the West Coast Computer Fair we were going gangbusters by the computer we had a huge booth we had lots of software being shown in a way which made people understand almost none of it that was the first computer Brooks Hall and well it was no it's a civic Brooks Hall is underground this is above her so no we were the king of the mountain at that point I have a little something to say about that too by that time I was one of the operational I was operations manager for the first West Coast Computer Fair and one of the things that really ticked me off were processor technology used dollies across the terrazzo in the front of the hall which is real a real no-no because it breaks little bits off of the terrazzo so I was pretty upset with processor technology and Bob Marsh was saying oh we know him you know he'll let us do whatever we want and I'm saying wait a minute you know you can't come in here with those things well the interesting part of it was that the Helios was the big show at that time the Sol had kind of fallen in behind the Helios as to be what it really was designed to be and what Lee was fond of calling it at that time which was a terminal computer well that was the name that Bob came up with terminal computer but it does make it sound like terminal is an adjective you know dying or something like that I hope not but you know terminal slash computer would be the better way to put it well no the point was that again taken in the time context a terminal that is something that talked through an RS-232 interface to a computer was a very expensive undertaking we're talking $3,500 typically and the Sol was considerably less than that and did the same function just as a terminal to talk to a big computer and I'm sure they were used for that in the case of the Helios because Helios was the disk system for it the Helios as I'm sure there's someone displayed downstairs was probably the biggest floppy disk system ever built and certainly the most solid and heaviest because it was cast metal the case and inside were two gigantic 8 inch Persei floppies floppies these things well they weren't rigid enough I'll put it that way they were designed by mechanical engineers and they were plagued by electrical problems especially involving little incandescent bulbs for photo sensors and the tiny tiny filaments in there would vibrate at ultrasonic frequencies and these were used to help position the heads because they had actual voice coil servo head positioners which would come out of hard disks but you see they would jiggle around at ultrasonic rates 
and that made for a real set of problems. But if you, we found that if you, the, the purse size stood on its narrow end vertically. If you put your hand on top of it and push to one side, it would go out of alignment. Well, the interesting thing was, you know, although uh, that doesn't seem like a good idea now, it certainly did seem like a good idea when the only other way to position ahead was to provide a lead screw with a stepper motor. Yeah. Well, the North Star, the, 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 the shoe guard floppies were, five inches were around by that time, right? Well, well they, came out, they, they came out in 1977. Oh, okay. They were at the 76 Atlanta. They were at the 76 Atlanta show. Uh, Atlantic City. Yeah. Um, and there was the North Star system. Um, and, you know, looking, well, one of the things I want to do here is sort of look ahead at what might have been, because that's interesting. Um, if North Star could have gotten along with processor tech, or, and vice versa, because they got into a lawsuit over the basic or something. Um, the two should have taken the two designs and got it, put them together in the same box. Um, because the, the solves that really worked were the solves that were used with North Star discs. Yes. And, and you know, the, the thing, you know, had I had 35 years of experience behind me at that point, I would have known the first thing to do after you get the first unit manufactured is start designing the next one. <laughs> because somebody else is already doing that. And, you know, you can't let up. We let up. Uh, they went off into a sort of uh, uh, romance with uh, computer graphics and graphic boards and graphic hardware. And I went along and I learned a lot and built a few things, but nothing for product. And got totally distracted. Uh, and when uh, Processor Tech was in its final year, some group of potential investors was apparently brought in by Adam Osborne, if I'm not mistaken. I probably, I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, and uh, they asked, okay, um, so what have you got coming next? And the answer was uh, nothing. You know, they didn't have a Z80 machine in, in development, which was necessary to really run CPM, apparently. Um, and here was this, you know, very nice solid design, but it's been out for a couple of years, and it, you need to get do some work to make it cheaper, and enhance the features people want, and modify the features you know, like the tape cassette interface. You know, we should have been working on that. So, real R&D, real product development, is an ongoing process, and as soon as you get one finished, you better start on the next one. That's very well said, Lee. You know, again, looking at the time frame, uh, we're looking at just about the time that K started pulling out the K-Pro uh, and that Adam Osborne was then uh, thinking about putting the Osborne system together and Northstar had, by virtue of not being able to do anything with processor technology, had decided to produce uh, the Northstar uh, system and those those really were if you want to look at it uh, from our standpoint uh, those would have been the logical add-ons to the Saul line in the 1920s somebody would have come up with a lot of money and said we're going to make the, 
the, you know, the personal computer company. And we're going to bio you guys up and, and, and get you in here and theoretically put together the hegemonic product. Whether that product would have been any good, I doubt. But we didn't do things that way anymore. Everybody sort of was left to wander around and fall off the cliff and everything like that. However, <coughs> one good thing did happen. Think about it. Uh, processor technology and Northstar, I conflate them a lot because <coughs> a lot of us went back and forth, seeded a lot of other companies with quality people. True. People who learned a lot the hard way. You know, that was our college for a lot of us. My college was the Air Force, but then, you know, we learned a lot. We took it elsewhere, and we, you know, other companies became somewhat successful because of, of what we learned and, and passed on. So in that contrast, breeding ground. Yeah, the two approaches, and they mark the difference of what makes Silicon Valley unique and effective as versus everywhere else. Uh, everywhere else there's a centralizing tendency that it's only good if it's all in one place and I own it. Uh, whereas every, here it's, it's a, a this uh, stew pot, I guess. All these lumps in it and people are moving from one lump to the other and, and as they go, uh, learning and exchanging information. Well, that was the thing that I remember most about the West Coast Computer Fierce, was that all the competitors were there, Kermemco and Northstar, and everybody was there, and everybody was swapping information. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like there were no trade secrets, and everybody told everybody everything, and it's like, oh, you're working on a paint system? Then we won't work on that. We'll work on a work processor. Oh, somebody's working on a work processor? Well, we'll work on a spreadsheet. And there was just a lot more synergy because you couldn't afford anything else. It was very collegial. Absolutely. I guess let's take the questions here. Yeah, it's been taken here for a few minutes. It seems to me the original app for uh, non-computer people was something called Electric Pencil. Mm -hmm. well, electric yeah. Pencil, that Michael Schreyer. That was Schreyer. Michael Schreyer. Yeah. Michael Schreyer, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, yes, Electric Pencil. It was, it was done for the, the VDM, and whether it required the, the, the memory map screen, I think it did, I'm not sure. Although it was done for CPM also, which is a character-oriented system. And Easy Writer used the same <coughs> command for the formatting. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. With permission. And he wrote Easy Writer, so you should know. <laughs> With permission, that's good. Um, yes, uh, the first, you know, in the, in, the, in the beginning, there was this myth that everybody Mouth, they mouth the mint. I like that. Uh, oh, we're going to use it for keeping recipes and balancing checkbooks. That's all we could think of. And, but you didn't need a reason, obviously. At least not a, a an application because you can't couldn't justify the amount of time, effort, and money you're going to spend that way. It was something much bigger than that. Now, only recently with the arrival of uh, John Markoff's book, and now there's a new one. A more sort of academic book on the was it counterculture from counterculture to cyberculture. It's about Stuart Brand's path. Mm -hmm. I think Stuart Brand, the editor or the publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog, was really the the important figure. I uh, I have to say something for those of you who don't know how famous I am. Um, <laughs> I, Hands, please. Uh, <laughs> I, I am famous for the uh, little VDM program that ran the choo-choo train from uh, the top of the screen down to the bottom of the screen and then started it all over again. Now, if you think about that, uh, why on earth anybody would want to spend the time to key that in? Or if you think about why anybody would even want to sit and watch it for three minutes, uh, you know, you would, 
you, you really don't understand what was going on. This was done by a computer, and it was done by your computer right in your living room. And even though it seems trivial to even mention it today, that was a big deal in those times. Because computer at that point meant institution, meant power, meant the means of exercising power, a means that everybody didn't have access to. You got, you know, we lined up at, the, at Berkeley in 1963 to register, and we got these packets of IBM cards and uh, so forth, and it, we, we, were, we were as much a part of the machine as those cards were. We were those cards, as far as the, the system was concerned. So, and uh, the, the, the concept that, uh, you know, anybody w should have the avail ability to make use of the same technology for any purpose they wanted, even if it was just running a choo-choo train across the screen, and could potentially then uh, work on the same plane technologically, remove that obstacle that, was, that they saw in their path of, well, there's me, I'm just a little person, and there's those big institutions, and then I gotta do what they say. That was really what, the message that Stuart Brand was pushing, that you can do it, you can learn about technology, all you hippies and ex-hippies that he was addressing in that, the publication. Going back in time, though, the, the games that were commonly played at that time are non-existent now. Reversi was one of them. Hunt the Wumpus was another. Uh, and these were fairly simple terminal games that were played. Right, uh, by, uh, especially uh, Bob Albrecht and People's Computer Company was a major uh, apostle of those, uh, those games. And it, yes. uh, it was, Albrecht was, uh, he, he may or may not have been fired, but he left control data when he was uh, found bringing in classes of school children to computer shows to use the equipment and show how easy it was to use. Now, most of the people at those computer shows, uh, and you had to be qualified uh, to come in, you know, the last thing they wanted to hear was the thing, this machine that you say it makes you so important can be used by kids. <laughs> and, and, you know, there you go. I, I wrote a little something that was published in 1975 in uh, the whole Earth, uh, their quarterly, Coalition Quarterly, an issue on personal computing. It was put together before the Altair and published after. And I was just saying that, that was it. These near-mythic beasts have been uh, made to cavort to order in backyard circuses. Um, computer professionals, in quotes, see this as a dangerous perversion. They are right. Uh, it is a perversion that exposes their original sin of making computers so uh, seem so powerful. Anyway, rhetoric aside, the uh, idea of why, why you would want to have a personal computer uh, I believe stemmed directly from the whole Earth catalog, and I believe that, <clears throat> well, it, it wasn't like we had discussions of this. The whole topic of why we're doing this was kind of never, you know, we just moved away from it, let's just keep doing it and see where we get. Because it was generally understood that if the big boys, if IBM, if Japan Incorporated, remember Japan Incorporated? Uh, if they found out what we were doing, they would lower the boom and we would all find ourselves picking beats somewhere. Yeah. Was, wasn't it Thomas Watson Sr. who said 
Nobody will ever buy a personal computer? No. Thomas Watson said there was a possibly a market for five computers in the entire world. He said it in 1943. And the person who said what you say is Ken Olson, Digital Equipment Corporation. And David All, who was asked to be here, and we didn't give him enough time to prepare it, so he wasn't. But he was he founded Creative Computing Magazine, which is one of the very, it was predated by, it was really the first personal computer magazine. It was for educators who were trying to get kids and computers together. And uh, he had been at, at DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, Maynard, Massachusetts, which was the premier hacker-run uh, mini-computer company. They would send you their entire manual for free, and you would learn how to, you could build their entire computer. You know, you couldn't get the parts necessarily, but it, you would learn all about it. Ken Olson ran that. <coughs> and but you have to give him some credit because if it wasn't for Ken Olson, this institution wouldn't be here. Well, yes. That's, I'm not saying he denied, he's right. not due credit. He's due plenty of credit. And David All took a PDP-8, which was just fairly recently available, around 1969 or something, and jammed it into a container with a monitor and a display. And you know, set it up in front of uh, Olson and said, "Here's a personal computer, and you can do this game and that game, and you know, do this and that with it from basic." And Ken is a very thoughtful guy, and he, he he thought about it for a while. He says, "I can think of no reason why anyone would want to have a computer in their home." And there was no reason, you know, it wasn't a matter of objective calculation. It's just that, you know, people, well. Look at the Frankenstein movie. That monster is a metaphor for industrial society running amok. In 1930, that was pretty pertinent. I, uh, I'd like to point out that uh, we bat around the term personal computer pretty easily because it's finally settled. Uh, exactly what to call this thing uh, was not settled for a very long time. I remember the first struggle was to say Altair MSI. Uh, bus and Altair MSI bus finally yielded to S100, uh, which the Saul clearly was. But the the problem of what to call a machine that you took home, uh, other than a home computer, uh, was a problem that really bothered Carl Elmers more than anybody else. So he grandly came up with the term appliance computer, which virtually nobody used. Uh, Ted Nelson, uh, one of the great uh, creative minds of the industry, came up with the word dinky computers, which would have been good if anybody had pushed it, but actually that's kind of deprecatory. He also, in his, uh, oh, yeah, you're right, that's, that's, that's cell phones today. Uh, he also, in his book, I think the personal computer revolution or something, very, very quickly computer dashed up. No, Computer Lib was his first book that started many people in the field. It was his whole earth catalog, in effect. Uh, but he then published a book in around 77, hailing the final arrival of computers. He had a little cartoon. He drew these little cartoons and the, 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 the thing sitting there. And really, it was a solid. He said, at last. You know, he, he had been crying in the wilderness since like 1960 for this sort of stuff. And he said, there are three kinds of computers, blinkies, blankies, and sols. There's the blinkies, which is the Altair, you know, the switches and lights on the front panel. There's the blankies, 
which had one button on the front panel. That's a load program button. And they had a ROM, and they would load a program from some external source, and you use a terminal on it. Like the North Star system. Exactly. And there were SALs, which was the ones which looked like terminals themselves, had their own display, and uh, you, would, you would run like that. So from that standpoint, the Apple II is a SAW. Ha-ha. Go tell Steve Jobs that. And then duck. Any more questions? Yeah, more questions are up. Yes. I don't know anything about it. Brett knows a lot about it. He was the one that was running from the law. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was, you know, I was a young guy then, so it was kind of really interesting. The, the more fascinating part of it was how many people who had uh, the, uh, what was those, 16KRA boards that failed? Because we had these memory boards that were dynamic RAM that were just disaster. And it was the first board where we soldered the memory chips right into the board. And uh, we had people scrambling to, make, to get parts to maintain the computers they had installed in some of their customers. So that was very interesting. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of backdoor dealing of parts, uh, you know, basically to fund uh, well, the company in transition. I don't want to go into that, but um, it, it, was, it was definitely an interesting time. It was an unfortunate time when you had to, you know, you go through and the company grew so quickly and, and really collapsed so fast. It was, it was I, I was one of the people who actually cleaned up processor after everybody left. And the, the women I just had to remember do that. it being Huge. The building was huge, and I mean, it was a Volkswagen factory. In Pleasanton, this was it. The third and taking place. taking a shopping cart and going into each office and taking out the rulers, and then coming back with another shopping cart and taking out all the staplers, and, and the, the waste, the, the just the waste of, of you know how much brain power had been in that in that very vibrant center two weeks ago, and. And it basically led me to this theory of entrepreneur's disease, which is, you know, the inability, I mean, the, the skill set that it takes to build a company is not necessarily the skill set that it takes to maintain a company. But I'm not sure that, that we, as, a, as an industry, really got our hands around that until the 80s, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Osborne said they knew, but they didn't. Yeah. But there was a lot of dysfunction at the management towards the end. Gary and Bob didn't get along. You know, that was a, a big problem. There was a lot of issues that were, you know, if you looked at it, you know, it's kind of classic. A lot of companies grow relatively quickly. They think they're, they're, they have these natural gifts that, you know, sort of they luck. Maybe it's a combination of luck, timing, and everything. Uh, if you ask Bob Marsh that question, he would answer the same way too. He's not like he wouldn't hide like you know it was somebody else's fault. Yeah. Bob, you know, knows what happened and talks about it because every time I've talked to him about it, he's been pretty straightforward. You know. And he wound up in legal trouble as a result. And so that's why you didn't see him heading up another company, uh, because that he had a judgment against him. Yeah, there's a lot of there was a lot of those issues that you know, I think it was just sort of classic of a lot of small companies in the valley that started. But I also think the company strategically made a mistake by moving to Pleasanton because it was a, a harder place to get talent probably to come to at that point in time. It was so far away. It was close to the president's home. That's the <laughs> there's that's been observed before. Yeah. But strategically, I think they just made some mistakes basically think of where they were going to be instead of living for you know, the next 90 to 180 days to kind of figure out where they are now. And yeah. then they, and they missed technology shifts. The, the whole Z80, they just missed that shift. They did not believe in the Z80. 
you know, the 8080 was the way to go. When you're in a company that's that successful in such a small space at the time, you don't look out and look at the landscape and see what other people are doing. For all the mistakes that companies like Apple, Microsoft, whoever made, they always managed to look outside and see where the competition was coming from. I think we were quite insular because, you know, we had this small world that was going very fast in one direction, I guess you call it tunnel vision, and nobody stopped and said, wait a minute, what's going to happen in five years, in ten years, in two weeks? Yeah, uh, in two, two weeks. weeks. <laughs> 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 well, I probably saw the two weeks. I, I have to jump in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the presumption is that, um, that you think that we knew what we were doing. Uh, if we'd known what we were doing, we probably would be in the second or third or fifth or the 2000th to do it. Uh, what we were doing had not been done, and therefore, did not only did we not know how to do it, nobody else knew how to do it. And we all were discovering what needed to be done, and there were a hell of a lot of technical problems. One point I just realized, as this was said, was that Processor technology never joined Silicon Valley in a social sense. Cultural. And, well, cultural too. I'm saying here, when in Planet Pleasanton, as you're saying, where are you going to go for lunch? Right? There's a place, but that's only you run into the same people. In Silicon Valley, everybody you know, meets each other at various places at lunch. And it, there is a network there. And we did not really join that network. But that's, that's what the West Coast computer fairs were all about. Once a year. Yeah. You know, it needed every week. Okay, John. And the North Star the same problem. Seventy eight. Seventy nine. I was I was there in the I had my VDM two almost working prototype in hand at the Javits computer not computer, Javits Convention Center in New York, waiting for to find the processor tech booth. And there was no processor tech booth. <laughs> And it, they generally it gradually dawned on me that they're not coming. <laughs> they're not. And sure enough, they had shut down. I don't know the month. I mean, it must have been early in, in the spring or something. I think it was May. Could have been. 79. Well, I, can, I can tell you because I went down to, um, I remember I took a field trip to Mike Flynn to have all of the various different boards I built my first computer out of, and that would have been about 79. Yeah, confirmed. It was about when you guys came out. I remember about four West Coast computers there, right? Yeah, because I worked for North Star to use you right away. They weren't just a four West Coast computer, were they? Yeah. Well, I can't remember the fourth. You always remember the first. One of the funny things when it was closing down was how many people called would call the company and say, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. So one of the funny times was I would answer the phone, and I'd always ask who it was, because I didn't know if it was legal people, I just went, and I wrote, kept a log of the whole thing. And this guy called up and said he was Steve Jobs, and he wanted to know what was happening. I never believed it was really him, but <laughs> I'll probably was. He was There's enough stories. By the way, the, the story sort of continues. There's a movie that, or it, it's a major TV movie, 55 minutes long, starting at 4 o'clock, right? Schedule yeah. still correct? Yeah. In Search of the Valley, it's by some Brits who came here looking for the valley. And it's a combination sort of road picture and very interesting sort of uh, exploration of Silicon Valley culture. Uh, of course, I'm in it. But uh, I, I recommend you see that. I, I, I brought some little cards here with 
could be uh, how you can you know there there URL where you can order it if you want. But uh, what we're saying here is exactly what they they explore in that picture. Um, it's not some it's not history, but it's culture. I you can hear some pretty dirty. Uh, words from uh, Mark Cantor talking about venture capitalists, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to mention was the processor was always trying to stay alive. I mean, the, 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 the lateness of the Helios, the, the whole time, I mean, they were, they were scratching for money. Uh, but one of, you know, Lee mentioned that, the, you know, the development kind of shut down. But, you know, we actually had uh, five and a quarter inch floppy systems uh, in development uh, when, uh, when the went belly up. We had a I think it was a 14-inch uh, hard drive that we were working on. We had a, a disk controller board that had an 8038 on it that we were working on. So, you know, we were still trying. We weren't doing anything with the saw. We had no uh, uh, no plans, it seems, to have a different computer. But we were still working on on peripherals and stuff. So, at, at one point, I, in frustration, I said, "What do you guys want me to work on?" And they said, "Well, we don't know. We've been wanting to see what you come up with." <laughs> but if they told me that at the beginning, I might have come up with something. I, I have a little insight into uh, something that may or may not have been one of the several mistakes that was made relative to processor. Was uh, I had quit uh, on December 17th of 1976, and I was hired almost immediately by MSI. And uh, while working at MSI. Uh, Bill Millard asked me if I would like to uh, work for one of the guys that he was uh, getting to start a new company that was going to be called Computer Shack. And so I ended up being, uh, now this is a really important title, uh, Manager of Product Selection, Evaluation, and Test was one of the titles. And the second title was Pilot Store Manager. And the reason that Bill Millar did that was because he thought that my influence at processor technology would certainly mean that processor tech would sell the very rare solves uh, to uh, this new company, Computer Shack, uh, and that they would have them so that they would have something to sell. Well, what happened was that Gary Ingram interpreted my quitting as some kind of high treason and he absolutely refused to sell anything to Computer Shack that then changed their name to Computer Land and went on to fame and fortune. But processor technology would not sell merchandise to Computer Shack. And I think that probably cost them deeply. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up on that point because Salam has re reminded me that this... Uh, Saw will be raffled off here. We need some time for that, right? Right. Okay, how are we going to do this? So, what are we going to do? I can't because I'm going to hand out tickets as And, uh, all right. Well, while you're handing out tickets, we're vamped till ready. We can, uh, we can also maybe take some questions if uh, anybody has All right. Can you guys gather around each Hey, Mike, you want to Should we put the, well, no, it, it's better nude like this. Gather around. So you're in the back. And I can I can see Gordon right here. Yeah, Gordon, Gordon, Gordon's right here. <laughs> he picked up the speakerphone. Okay. Am I looking up the receptacle by any chance? Uh, you're looking up Lee's receptacle. Now, now. All right, pictures. There we go.
No, I don't want to do that. Okay. Go to one. It seemed like it, but not so. No, this is a, I don't know why this is. It says, a keyboard here says scroll up, delete character, insert character. This is not the keyboard that, not our standard keyboard. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, and uh, again, so let's see, let's pull these cards. Now you can see the glory of the, uh, cir the circuit board. This looks like a Rev D, but I'm not sure. It would say underneath here, right? Rev E, okay. So you're number 503-893. Well, you know that 500,000 of these things were never built. And these parking cars are someone else's memory boards. So we have uh, this is solid 1970s design. Really solid. Really solid. A lot of tips. You've been listening to Digibarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the Digibarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.